to join in on that, but today is an, uh, an especially important day and weekend because it's our weekend of service at TLCC where we have already and will continue to go out and serve hundreds and hundreds of people in the community through 15 to 20 different service projects that our Plus Life Local and Plus Life Global teams. Let's give them a big round of applause for and everyone who's served. Um, and they're, they're also serving opportunities today, right after the service that I'll let you know about in, in a little while. Uh, Weekend of Service comes at a very good time in, in the scope of what we've been talking about and focusing on at TLCC. Russ mentioned it, Jason mentioned it last week. Uh, we operate in trimesters at TLCC where we pick a theme and focus on that theme over the course of four months in different kinds of ways that are hopefully dynamic uh, and, and hits it from kind of different angles. And we've been talking about for almost four months here, uh, the theme of witness, where uh, when we believe in Christ, we receive the Holy Spirit and are empowered to be witnesses in the world. Uh, the Holy Spirit shows Christ himself to us. And then through that revelation, through that understanding of Christ, we can then go out and share Christ uh, with the world. We can be witnesses. Well, uh, in this series, MVP, we're looking at uh, great, uh, what we're calling MVPs of the faith, coming from Hebrews, where it talks about the hall of faith. Uh, these people who have come before us, Christians who have lived out their faith in a powerful, in an exemplary, and honoring way, and we're seeing how we can learn from them, from their stories, from how they have lived out their faith, so that we can then live out our faith and witness Christ to others in an effective, in a meaningful in an exemplary sort of way. Uh, uh, this, the, kind of the founding scripture for this series come from, comes from Hebrews 12, where uh, before this passage I'll, I'll read in just a second, it's going through the hall of faith, all of these, all of these people who have, who have followed Christ before us that we can learn from. And then in Hebrews, it talks about how those people in some perhaps literal or, or, uh, or uh, kind of uh, figurative way are watching us in our journeys as well. In Hebrews 12, the author says, since we today are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. All of us are in this great race, this journey, this competition that has been marked out for us. And what you have to do is you have to imagine yourself sitting in this or, or, or living and working and accomplishing in this great stadium where all of these people who have come before you, who have lived out and ran the race as well, are now almost sitting in the stands and watching you on your journey in your race. And we want to learn from what those people have experienced. I love this, the kind of the, the sporting metaphor, uh, because uh, you know, it, growing up playing sports and going to college and playing sports, uh, it's very different when you're, you know, on the practice field with no one in the stands and, you know, running plays. Or when you're sitting in the film room and studying plays and how you're going to pull them off and all that kind of stuff. But when you walk out on that field and you're in the middle of a competition, in the middle of a game, and there are 10,000 fans roaring and cheering, the weight of that moment, the realization of kind of the heft of what you're doing, uh, reaches a new sort of high where you get pushed to try harder, to do more, and to put all of your effort into what you are doing. 
Well, sometimes, and I know this is the case for myself frequently, uh, uh, I don't know, my faith feels kind of like a private thing, like I'm, I'm secluded to a room where I'm kind of doing my thing, internal, prayer life, spiritual life, all that sort of stuff. And in reality, we have to look at what we're doing for Christ as us being a part of a great competition, a race, a journey where we are expected amongst the roaring crowd to follow the, the markings out of the, of the race that Christ has for us so that we can accomplish his will in this world. Uh, I always try and find reasons in my faith to feel like competitive. To, to, I, I tend to like in scripture like the, the very sacrificial kind of you know, challenging verses because it makes me feel like I'm, uh, there's something meaningful something meaningful that I have to do in my life that God has set out for me, and I like how this verse uh, points that out. When I don't have competition, it, it's, it, it's, uh, my life gets very boring. Now that I'm done playing like organized sports, like, any sort of competition becomes the most important thing happening. Like ping pong is now, at, that ping pong is like, I will be depressed for a week if I lose a ping pong game. Luckily, I never lose a ping pong game, so I'm looking for challengers. No, just kidding. Um, uh, it's like, you know, the flip bottle game that people play or like kids will play sometimes. I played it like once and it was like the most intense game I've ever played in my life trying to flip the bottle. Competition gets us going, it gets the, the blood running and we are in a competitive match and we have people who are watching us and cheering us on. So today we're going to take a, a deeper a, a, a look specifically at one of those MVPs of the faith, one of those people in the proverbial stands who are watching us, the, the great cloud of witnesses. Um, and how, uh, how their story can inspire us in our faith and how their service helped to witness uh, Christ to other people. But before we jump into their story, I want to start by talking about how service, this idea of service, uh, of charity, of, of sacrifice, of generosity, has been central for the Christian faith throughout history and how its practice has helped to spread Christ in incredible ways. It has helped us to witness uh, there's a really interesting historical account given by Eusebius. He was uh, an old historian, ended up being the bishop of Caesarea. He lived about 300 years after, about 300 years after Christ. So that's uh, very early in relation to kind of our scope of history. And it makes us understand what Christians were doing fairly soon after the life and death of Christ. So Eusebius was living in a time when the Roman Empire was still reigning and was still uh, antagonistic towards the Christian faith and even to some extent persecuting Christians. Uh, the area was undergoing a plague and a famine uh, and many people were falling ill and dying and the Christians were the ones who were noticeably stepping up and serving people in their communities. Eusebius writes, all day long, some of them, the Christians, tended to the dying and to their burial, countless numbers with no one to care for them. Others gathered together from all parts of the city, a multitude of those withered from famine and distributed bread to them all. Eusebius goes on to state that because of their service in the midst of this plague and famine, that the Christians' deeds were on everyone's lips and they glorified the God of the Christians. Such actions convinced them that they alone were pious and truly uh, reverent to God. I love this because uh, it's showing how though service is popular today, like philanthropic work, right? a lot of charities, uh, a lot of initiatives that you can jump in, a lot of key clubs or whatever. I don't know exactly what those do. When I was in high school, but I think they serve you know, a bunch of people. Uh, that, that this kind of philanthropic social consciousness that we have now has not always existed through history. 
But it's interesting to see that for Christianity, we aren't just following a trend today or a certain stream of social consciousness, that Christians have had this value rooted in the relationship with Christ from the beginning of, of, uh, of Christianity. And uh, it's interesting, too, in this historical account, uh, a couple of decades later, after Eusebius, the last non-Christian emperor of Rome, his name was Julian, he, he started to see this self-sacrificial characteristic of Christianity, and he essentially said that the philanthropy of the Christians is what Christianized the Roman Empire. That is what brought so many people to Christ. He ends up saying, so he's, you know, what they would call like a pagan. It sounds like a derogatory word, but, uh, you know, that's the word that they would use. That this pagan emperor ended up trying to encourage and instill values of self-sacrifice into the non-Christian people so that they could begin to convert people to paganism. It's kind of intriguing. They saw essentially the effect that serving people had on bringing them to Christ and showing them a deeper meaning or a value that they had. However, it ended up not really working for uh, those who were not Christ believers. And it's essentially because they didn't have, as I've, as I've read in, 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 the, in the histories of this, they didn't have the self-sacrificial ethic that Christianity had to support them and to give them meaning in their self-sacrificial work. I think what's so interesting is that, you know, it's very easy to imagine if you're serving someone and you give them a loaf of bread because they need a loaf of bread. They don't just stop at receiving the loaf of bread oftentimes. They want to know why you gave it to them. They want to understand the deeper purpose, the mindset. Why would someone give what they have to me? What is the purpose behind this thing? People want to know the purpose of your service. People want to know what the foundation of it is. And if you don't have a foundation for your service, a strong meaning behind what you're doing, then you aren't offering someone more than just a loaf of bread. I don't just want to offer someone a loaf of bread, though I do want to do that, but I want to offer them meaning, holistic help that can uh, uh, happen in their lives. The beauty of Christianity, I believe, and why it has, uh, why when it is implemented in a self-sacrificial and service-oriented way, why it has brought so many people to Christ is because it does have good purpose and reason behind its service. To where when you loan someone the loaf of bread and they go, why are you doing this? That we have reasons to offer them that are compelling, that make people want to come in and to follow Christ. It is a great witness to Christ. In a world that is very, uh, uh, you know, one thing I found is that uh, I know a lot of people who are very generous people, and a lot, if not most of those people, are not Christ followers or Christians. Absolutely, some of the most overly generous people are not. But in reality, what, what I think is that if you ask someone who, who, at least people that I know, why they are so generous, why they are philanthropic and charitable, they do not have a strong reason or a purpose for their generosity. Oftentimes, our self-sacrifice and service is selfish in that it makes us feel better or it makes us feel like we're doing something to the, for, for the world. Right? You ever like, ask someone, like, hey, why are you giving that money away? And they say, it just really makes me feel better. 
Well, that's not something about the other person. That's about yourself. And therefore, there's a selfish foundation to self-sacrifice. Therefore, you're not self-sacrificing. I don't know how many other selves I can fit into the sentence, but we'll, I'll try and get more in there later. I think this is an interesting account of how our society oftentimes doesn't have good purpose uh, contrasted to some of the, the, the beauty of Christ and his self-sacrifice as providing purpose. Uh, there's a story from Pastor Tim Keller, who has an awesome church in New York City. He was talking with a couple that had strong social conscience that's kind of reflective of our day, but they had little reason, and they saw that they had little reason for why they were so socially conscious and were trying to uh, help the world. He says, a young couple once came to me for some spiritual direction. They didn't believe in much of anything, they said. How could they begin to figure out if there was even a God? I asked them to tell me about something they felt was really, really wrong. The woman immediately spoke out against practices that marginalized women. I said I agreed with her fully since I was a Christian who believed God made all human beings. But I was curious uh, why she thought the marginalization of women was wrong. She responded, women are human beings and human beings have rights. It is wrong to trample on someone's rights. I asked her how she knew that. Puzzled, she said, everyone knows it's wrong to violate the rights of someone. I said, most people in the world don't know that. They don't have a Western view of human rights. If there is no God, as you believe, and everyone has just evolved from animals, why would it be wrong to trample on someone's rights? Her husband then stepped in and responded, it seems like in a protective maneuver overseeing her going down a path in this little argument they were having. He says, yes, it is true we are just bigger brained animals, but I'd say animals have rights too. You shouldn't trample on their rights either. So now you shouldn't trample on humans or animals' rights. I asked whether he held animals guilty for trampling on the rights of other animals if the stronger ones ate the weaker ones. No, I couldn't do that, he said. Why this double standard, I asked. Why did the couple insist that human beings had to, di had to be different from animals so that they were not allowed to act as was natural to the rest of the animal world? Why did the couple keep insisting that humans had this great, unique, individual dignity and worth? Why did they believe in human rights? I don't know, the woman said. I guess they are just there, that's all. The young couple laughed at the weakness of some of their responses. I love this kind of conversation, and I've had many of them, where we kind of assume human rights, social consciousness, go out and help people. But then if you ask someone, sometimes the worldview behind all of the self-sacrifice is one of, well, we're just sacks of atoms that are moving, and there's nothing's going to matter once we die. We aren't going to go over where uh, uh, the, the, the philosophy of, of naturalism, materialism, is what makes sense about this world. There's no greater meaning, no God, nothing beyond us. But I'm going to go give my money because... And then we go, why? Why? What's the purpose of all of it? As a society, if I believe that if we do want to move forward in progressing to make the world a better place, then we have to ask that essential question of why so that we can provide a deeper foundation for making the world a better place. The beauty of, of Christ and, and his teachings, I believe, is that he gives us a purpose for our service. He gives our service true meaning. First of all, Christ calls us to serve. And we see this in scripture. In Mark, he says, for even the son of man did not come to be served, 
but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is awesome. God himself comes down to the world and he comes, I would have expected him to come down on like a throne in a great cloud with a big scepter in his, in his you know, hand, uh, kind of like Jafar from Aladdin. I don't know where that reference came from. You know, it's like, like I'm going to go smite people who do whatever. And that's kind of what people were expecting in, in that time when Jesus came. They were expecting the Messiah to come, and they were expecting the Messiah to establish a political, physical reign and to fight and lead the, lead the battles against the enemies of the Jewish people. How contrary to expectations did Jesus manifest himself as God coming down and giving himself as a ransom for the people who didn't deserve to receive uh, you know, reparations for their sins. That God himself came down as a servant for many. Then in 1 Peter, Peter says, each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. We all have gifts, we're supposed to use them. There's so many scriptures like this. This is just kind of a cross section showing the value of service. In, in Acts, Paul says, in everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. Remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. See, in, in Christianity, we have this value of self-sacrifice rooted in the fact that God himself incarnated in this world to give himself as a sacrifice for many so that he could take on the pain and the suffering and the sin and the weakness of the world to defeat all of that and all of the evil that's bound up in it so that we could then live in a redeemed, fulfilled world that was back to how it was originally supposed to be. And the way that he did this, we see in Matthew, Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross, just as Jesus did, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. By losing our lives and taking up our cross in the name of Christ, we embark on a journey of making the world what it was supposed to be and what God ultimately wants it to be. To me, that's a pretty good reason to go and serve. That gives us a foundation. That gives us inspiration. It's not just putting a facade over a messed up world. We reach through the facade and we have the humbly offer to people the, the big fix of what God has for people saying, I want to bring you into my mission and to make the world right through you. I want to get rid of the weakness and the pain and the suffering that people are facing. In Christ, we have a purpose for our service and that's means that when we are serving people, we have something bigger to offer than the bread, though the bread is immensely important. The physicality of the suffering that we can experience is that when someone asks us, why are you doing this? We have purpose and foundation for all that we do. I want to, uh, uh, for the rest of our time, um, to talk about one uh, example, an MVP of the faith, if you will, uh, who was a great servant, I believe, was very generous, and uh, uh, I'd love to talk about the story of C.S. Lewis. Who's heard of C.S. Lewis before? I'm sure most of us. Very popular as uh, an academic, as a, a novelist, as a Christian apologist, meaning a defender of the Christian faith, uh, and lived throughout, most, uh, throughout half uh, or so of the 20th century. And 
did incredible work to change the landscape of Christianity, of the world's relationship to Christianity, and brought a whole bunch of people to the Christian faith through his books and radio shows and lectures uh, and more. So uh, Lewis was born in 1898. He grew up in Ireland and at a young age moved to England and he started his studies at Oxford when World War II, when World War, at the advent of World War I. And so him and many of his, uh, of those in his peers had to go over and fight in World War I. And after Lewis went over uh, fighting for the English, uh, the English shot a shell that shot too short and landed close to Lewis and killed two of his friends, and the fragments of it injured him in the process, sending him back home. As he came back, I think it's interesting to even think about service and suffering, especially with generations like the World War I, World War II generations, where they were personal, a lot of their young lives were formed by the suffering, where a lot of these guys who were over there, especially a lot of Christian authors, they're writing poems and works in bomb shelters, uh, in trenches, you know, having to wear gas masks, and there was a certain uh, worldview possibly that they had that colored how they lived uh, and, and how they looked at serving other people. So Lewis comes back, uh, and upon his return, he finishes his studies uh, largely in literature at Oxford, and he pursued a teaching career. Well, uh, at about age 15, he ended up becoming uh, a very strong atheist, saying, ironically, that he was angry at God for not existing. He was angry at something that didn't exist for not existing. A very, it kind of shows the deep down, the longing that one has for God, the acknowledging of God, uh, even while you're mad at him, and that's why you don't believe in him. What many uh, don't realize is that uh, actually it was, so some of like the anti-religious sentiment that we can experience today or thinking Christianity uh, is very illogical or ignorant or doesn't have reasons behind it, etc. Where that is rooted in is late 19th and 20th century academia. So back in, again, the, the, the late 19th century, people were writing academic works against the Christian faith and developing philosophies and epistemologies uh, and metaphysical theories and all this sort of stuff that started in the academic realm where slowly Christians began to get kicked out of different fields and those who did not believe in Christianity began to, to sit in those different uh, you know, professorships or in chairs of universities. And then what happened socially is that a freshman goes to school and their teacher believes this view and then they teach the freshman that view. And then over years, that freshman graduates and they've learned this all throughout their four years in college. And then they end up becoming a teacher at a, at a high school and then they teach in that high school those views. And then when, they're, when they have kids, they teach their kids those views. And then all of a sudden, Nietzsche used to say it takes 50 years from an idea to get from the ivy tower to the street. And so where we are today is largely birthed out of the, 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 the late 19th century skepticism that began that now we're kind of, we're reverting against and where people like me and others are uh, humbly attempting to change the academic scene and to see Christianity as a viable academic discipline. Nonetheless, why is what I'm saying important? This is where Lewis grew up, uh, the, the, the environment he grew up in. He grew up in an academic setting that was highly skeptical of the Christian faith. And it was not just a quiet skepticism, but a, skepticism, a, 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 a visceral kind of anger towards Christianity that he grew up in. 
And after uh, going through school, th- this, this occurs, and uh, eventually once he gets out, he develops uh, uh, friendships with a bunch of people who he really connected with, and they end up being Christians, unbeknownst to him. It's almost like at one point, he's connecting with these people on literature, and then he's going, what, they're all Christians? This stings, what am I supposed to do about this? After many, many hours of debate and arguing, and uh, they, they, they had famous conversations about God and who he was and whether or not he existed, Lewis one day said uh, that he fell to his knees and he was the most unwilling convert in all of England. He had come to God almost not by his own wishes, but he had realized the truth of what his friends were saying from a logical and reasonable perspective. And he said, I think this is true, therefore I have to believe it. And over time, he conformed his life to the teachings of Scripture and to try and live out uh, what Christ commanded us to be and, and who we are inspired to be. And he embarked on this new journey and ended up being, uh, perhaps, certainly in recent history, the most effective evangelist in the Christian faith, both in academia and in the real world. Lewis ended up becoming uh, the face of Christianity in England in his time and a a lot of the Western world. At once he was asked uh, to participate in a religious radio station through the BBC during World War War II. He was invited to share his thoughts on Christianity and more than a million people listened to some of his 25 uh, broadcasts over a three-year span during World War II. Check this out to hear some of what it sounds like. Give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life, and you will save it. Submit to death, submit with every fiber of your being, and you will find eternal life. Look for Christ, and you will get him, and with him, everything else thrown in. Look for yourself, and you will get only hatred, loneliness, despair, and ruin. Believe it or not, that was wildly entertaining, you know, a few years ago, <laughs> where they didn't have Netflix. BBC was the Netflix of, of entertainment. Uh, millions of people listened and, and came to Christ through this process, and Lewis became uh, the face of a new sort of Christian movement. And a couple years later, his, his fame had grown so much, his popularity, that his face landed on the, on the cover of Time magazine. And the subtitle under, under the title is C.S. Lewis, His Heresy, Christianity. That title, I believe, kind of amidst all of his success, was the real headline for a lot of people, was that this guy who so many people were following was, perhaps embarrassingly, a, a, a Christian. So Lewis was kind of first and foremost an academic. That's what he, he was trying to find professorships, and he was cutting edge in theories of, of poetry, in literature, and in interpretive methodologies, things that don't apply to faith at all. That was his profession. That was kind of his foundation of his life, just like many of you have your professions and what you spend a lot of your life on. Well, Lewis, once he started to become this popular speaker throughout the world, encouraging Christ. Lewis began to face backlash in what was possibly his foundational community. 
Lewis multiple times began to try and uh, advocate or, or, or to interview for jobs at chairs of departments of universities and was expressly pushed away from those chairs and those opportunities because he was a Christian and because of his Christian writings. Imagine how that would feel. You've gone out and, and written pretty dense academic works on Christianity. Uh, you know, it's not, it's not sappy work or sentimental work that has gained him international acclaim. But now when he goes to the academy, to the place that was kind of his home, he's rejected by the people because he's been out there witnessing for Christ. Never in any of my readings of, of Lewis, of his autobiography or biographies on him, did he ever regret or wish that he had not done these popular works that went out and spread Christ, even though it resulted in him being rejected by so many of, of the people who he would have wished would have likely accepted him. Sometimes when we commit to sacrificing for Christ, to witnessing for Christ, we will be rejected by so much of the world and what we think is success for me to get this job or for me to be able to establish this relationship, or for this person to accept me, we will be rejected by so many people in light of our service. But Lewis knew that his service was more important than his success. That going out and sacrificing for God and doing the thing that God had called him to was more important than maintaining a reputation within his industry so, he could maintain, so that he could continue to have value there. Lewis continued to have caricatures made of him uh, as people were, were falsely accusing him of certain personality traits or things that he was doing. And you can see the backlash that sometimes come against great servants. One of the criticisms of Lewis uh, after that Time article was from a woman named Ann Connor who wrote him a letter saying, if only Christ had had the C.S. Lewis brand of Christianity. What an easy life he could have led. Instead of going out among the poor and lowly, preaching the brotherhood of man under the fatherhood of God, he could have stayed comfortably in the temple discussing intricate points of theology with the rabbis and answering not very bright questions of the students. Had Christ followed such a course, his career would not have included the bitter agony of Calvary. No doubt he would have lived to be a wealthy, opinionated Christian of the C.S. Lewis type. What a terrible critique. Imagine, you've spent so much of your life trying to go out there and serve, and then you're getting angry letters from people saying that your life isn't reflective of Christ, if only if he could have lived that kind of swooning British. I think it's an American uh, who's writing uh, to Lewis. I have to imagine, this is pure conjecture, but you hear Lewis in like the British accent, the old British accent, and I won't attempt it right now. And he's kind of like that swooning voice and someone's going, what an easy life he must live. Look at the Time article, look at his BBC broadcast. He's not living the life of Christ. One of the most glaring realizations to me and to be honest, if that's all C.S. Lewis did and he taught, I would probably have defended him or, or I would have said, you know, he's doing something great. The fact is that even though Lewis was doing such massively effective and efficient communications and teachings that brought people to Christ, he never forgot about the small people around him that he had to serve and to give to and to be generous and to sacrifice his time for. There's so many stories of C.S. Lewis uh, who, would, who would respond to rand, like almost as many letters as he could respond to of people who were asking him questions he would respond to. 
Think about his time. He's lecturing all day, typically, at Oxford. He's tutoring people to make money. He's going on spe- he has speaking engagements, always writing books. Imagine the busyness of his life that he was taking time to respond to people who had questions, small questions, about the things that he was teaching. He would personally, uh, without monetary transaction, uh, teach and tutor people in Hebrew and Greek and Latin or, or in Scripture or in apologetics, whatever it might be. As someone, one of his friends said when they were giving the eulogy for Lewis, uh, his characteristic attitude to people in general was one of consideration and respect. He did his best for them, and he appreciated them. He paid you the compliment of attending to your words. He did not pretend to read your heart. He was endlessly generous. He gave without stint to all who seemed to care for them, the riches of his mind and the effort of his wit. When he had entered into any relationship, his patience and his loyalty were inexhaustible. He was really a Christian, by which I mean he never thought he had the right to stop. I love that last line. Lewis was incredibly generous towards people. And when we think about generosity, I, uh, and I can at least speak for myself, generosity seems like the extra that we don't have to do but that we decide to do, right? Kind of like the cherry on top. Lewis was so generous, and because of his faith, he didn't think that he had the right to choose to stop being generous. Generosity is not a choice. Our service, the extra work, is not a a choice for us. It is something that we are commanded to do, that we should do if we're inspired by Christ in the life that he lived, that it is not our choice to stop it or or, uh, uh, to, to think that it's just, it might be too much for us, that we are called to generosity in whatever way that looks like for each of us. Not only was he personally generous, He was financially generous. Uh, Lewis, imagine how much money he was making from selling millions and millions of copies of different books, radio broadcasts, lecturing, etc. He spent so much money giving to people that he almost went broke after he got famous and started making so much money. He almost lost his house because he was giving money away to people. He ended up having to ask a friend to come in and to start a fund where the guy would manage the money for him and give away two-thirds of all of the money that came in from royalties for books. He ended up dying with around 37,000 pounds in his bank account. And that kind of sounds like a lot, especially probably back then. I was like, it's $40,000-ish, let's say. And, and Imagine the millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars that he had up to that point. Yet he gave so much of it away that he was constantly on the verge of possibly losing all that he had. Lewis once said, I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditure on comforts, luxuries, amusements, etc., is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, we are probably giving away too little. If our charities do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say they are too small. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot do because our charitable expenditure excludes them. I love this. Lewis did not shape his charity around the comforts of his life, of saying, I am first going to think about what I need, and then I am going to go and think about what other need. He hampered and pinched the comforts and luxuries of his own life based upon first making the decision of charity to other people. 
And he also took great joy in, in giving spontaneously to people randomly, like on the street. And some of you might disagree with this quote, but I still think it's fun and I like it. He says, it will not bother me in the hour of death to reflect that I have been had for a sucker by any number of imposters, but it would be a torment to know that one had refused even one person in need. Another thing that annoys me is when people say, why did you give that man money? He'll probably go and drink it. My reply is, but if I'd kept it, I should probably have drunk it. I just love this kind of whimsical, self-giving nature that Lewis exuded, where Lewis was always pushing the boundaries of his life. People talk about time, talent, and treasure. As, as the things that we have. We, all, we have time to give, we have our talents to give and offer to others, and we have our treasure, our, our financial capacity or physical capacity to give towards other people. He was always pushing the boundaries of, of I, I think I read somewhere that he, he didn't take a vacation for like 15 years, his time. He was constantly giving his talent to people, both in his vocation, writing books for people, or one-on-one, spending time tutoring people in things that weren't connected with the, with the demands of his professional life. And he was giving financially to people to support people where they were in need. This strikes home so much for me because uh, of, of how much he was doing. And today we talk so much, I think sometimes we err on the idea of, of not burning out. We all are focused so much on not burning out. Who's ever said, or maybe heard someone say, so you don't have to admit it yourself, where you say like, someone says, oh, I'm just burnt out, or I'm burning out. Anyone? No one? I know more people have heard it, right? All right. You've heard people say that they're burning out. Well, it makes, we have to stay away from burning out, 100%, right? We want to be healthy, holistic, holistically healthy people. But I think so often we are so scared of burning out that sometimes we rust out instead. I heard that quote somewhere. It's better to burn out than to rust out. I would rather deal with, you know, getting the fire extinguisher on the burning car to make sure that it, you know, the, 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 I would rather be a fire than there'd be no fire at all in my life because I'm doing so much stuff. And I love C.S. Lewis. It's like the, the throttle is always at full go as much as he can. And it's, I've spent too much burning through the bank account, I have to pull that back and figure out how to do all of this in a smart kind of way. I think all of our fundamental dispositions, at least, what, what we hope to be able to do is to go out and to say, how much can I do? Opposed to saying, well, this is how much time I have. What can fit in to the rest of my life? Opposed to organizing your life around what it means to give to other people. And I want to talk about one more story from C.S. Lewis's life. Is that all right? One more, one more, and then we'll be done. He met a, a, a woman named Joy. He, he had a very interesting relationship she, uh, with her. She was an American who, through reading his letters, uh, his books rather, she ended up writing uh, some letters to him, and they ended up kind of enjoying a, a letter relationship overseas. And uh, over time, Joy would end up coming to, to where Lewis and Lewis's brother uh, lived, Warney, and would spend a little bit of time with him and then come back to America and spend time with him and come back to America. And eventually, uh, Joy was threatened with the proposition of, of being kicked out of England and not being able to come back because of some political past that she had had. Well, over this time of them, uh, uh, you know, seeing each other and hanging out together, Joy had developed quite a fondness for C.S. Lewis. And no one quite knows exactly what C.S. Lewis thought of her. 
But when they came to this place, so they had this, this friendship at least, and Joy was seemingly in love with him and he, no one knows about him, C.S. Lewis ended up saying, hey, look, in order to just figure this out, let's legally get married so that you can stay here and have, uh, you know, have citizenship in England. So they get married, they explicitly do it in just kind of a legal way so that she could technically stay present in England. Uh, it doesn't seem that uh, over time that they developed a romantic relationship. Again, no one quite knows, but it doesn't seem like it. So now they're married and after a couple years of, of this sort of technical marriage, they end up realizing through pain that Joy is having in her body that for a couple of years, she's been suffering with such vicious cancer that her moths, that her bones now, as the doctor said, had looked moth-eaten. She was in severe, severe pain. And Lewis and, and her are going through this journey together, and Joy's relationship has developed with him. And in some way, who knows exactly how all of this works out, Lewis ends up uh, asking Joy to, to join a full Christian union, a covenant before God with him to express their fidelity and love for one another. As Joy is on her, you know, potential deathbed, Lewis has a pastor come in and marry them together. And I think this represents part of Lewis's sacrifice. What a difficult moment. They, he knows that this woman who he's developed this, this marital love for is going to die, yet he knows what he has to do to do the right thing by her. And he sits by her side and gets married to her. Well, Lewis went on uh, a long track to begin to pray for a miracle for healing in Joy's life. But he didn't just pray for her to get cured. He specifically prayed that he would take on the pain of Joy's cancer in his own body and that she would therefore be relieved of pain. In some incredible way, maybe it's coincidence, maybe it's not, Lewis almost immediately came down with illness himself and Joy was relieved of her pain despite still having, uh, being technically sick. One of his friends, Neville Coghill, asked him point blank, you mean that her pain left her and that you felt, it, you felt it for her in your body? Lewis replied, yes, in my legs. It was crippling, but it relieved hers. At times, the pain was so bad that Lewis screamed. He ceased his beloved rambles, his walks, and took to wearing a surgical belt, a sort of corset that, he joked, gives me a wonderfully youthful figure. Coghill believed that Lewis's uncanny healing skills were but one aspect of his life-giving generosity, which manifested itself as well in his widespread charity about which he also kept silent. See, Lewis believed at the core of the story of this world and the core of what's happening in Scripture is that God came down and acted as the substitute for all of our pain and all of our suffering and all of our weakness and all of our sin. And because, and because Lewis was a Christ follower with the Holy Spirit within him, he knew that he could bear the pain and be the substitute of the pain that someone else was feeling because he knew that he had the power of Christ within him. And Christ on the cross, it was a difficult process, right? It's all just not a happy ending. He, it was a difficult process for Christ to sacrifice himself for all of us but he knew that all the pain and suffering and sin that he bore on his shoulders, even though it was a difficult process, he knew that there was victory ahead.
And because he knew that there was victory, he could bear and shoulder the pain for all of us. Similarly, I think that for all of us today, in the, 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 the likeness of, of Lewis in some kind of way, we can bear the pain of the world and look it straight in the face because Jesus has taken care of our pain and our suffering. And so I would challenge all of us just to think about how grateful we should be in light of the unmerited sacrifice and substitution that Jesus made for us, that we should want to be walking embodiments of sacrifice, of substitution for the pains of other people. So what can we do to go out there and to relieve the pain of the world, to take on some of the suffering in places that, that we are overwhelmed with blessing and try and serve people? Obviously, there's balance in all this. You don't want a whole bunch of people burning out and you know, all that sort of stuff. But God has called you to something that is central to your life. And when you begin to serve people in extraordinary, generous ways, guess what? You're helping the person and you're showing and witnessing Christ to them.